Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Adventures in .NET episode. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today is your other host, Caleb Wells from... Where are you from, Caleb? Typhoon Group. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, y'all. Typhoon Group, right? Yes. Yes. And also with me on the panel is Charles McWood. Say hi, Charles. Hey, uh, I'm just going to throw in here, too. I just found out that I was accepted as an expert speaker slash podcaster at Ignite. So if you're going to be there, come find me. Awesome. I saw that. What are you going to talk about? So I'm going to do a Ruby Rogues episode on containerizing your Rails apps. And then I'm going to do a Views on View episode on using serverless with Vue. So. Sweet. At a Microsoft conference. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. All right. And our awesome guest today is Philip Epberg. He's a Microsoft MVP and a Pluralsight author. Uh, I want to say hi, Philip. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. So I think we're going to cover a number of topics today. So Philip, you do a lot of things. Where do you think we should start? You know, I've primarily worked with C Sharp and .NET for the, for the past few years. And there's some really interesting things happening in the, the C Sharp ecosystem or the C Sharp world. You know, we've got this great version of C Sharp coming up, which is C Sharp 8. It's just around the corner. There's some really interesting features coming to the language. And even if you've done C Sharp for a long time, I think there's going to be a few things in there for you that you're really going to be liking your applications. Great. So I understand you've done uh, talks at NDC over the last few years around .NET, and uh, you work both in the web and the mobile space. That's correct, uh, yeah. So I've done all everything from, you know, the old ASP.NET web forums, and I've done classic ASP as well, and then I've done Xamarin and doing native development as well. So I'm trying to get my, uh, my hands in every type of different type of programming environment. So yeah, so yeah. All the cool things about different programming languages, but my love has always been in C Sharp. Cool. I think your talk at NDC a couple of years ago was around tasks in async await. I know that's changed a lot, you know, since I started developing 15 or so years ago. Yeah. Right. And it's as C Sharp tends to do, it simplifies what you have to do and then just hides the complexity. But or handles it for you to a certain extent. So if you're okay, I think that's that's a good place to start is talking about the evolution sure. of running tasks, multi-threading, async await, how it's used inside of the framework. Yeah, so, you know, as you said, over the years, there's been a lot of changes as to how you work with asynchronous programming in your applications, especially... If you're coming from an older type of application development, you're probably familiar with background workers and mm-hmm. creating and spawning threads yourself. But you also know that it gets pretty hard managing that in your applications. So the, the task parallel library that was introduced in, I believe it was .NET 4.5, really changed the way that we look at 
multi-threading in our applications because we no longer have to think about the particular task or the particular thread that we're creating. We have this system in .NET that just handles everything for us. So the idea is that we say, I want to shoot off this work and run this somewhere. I don't really care if you create a new thread or if you create multiple threads or how you divide up this work, just solve it for me. And then we have things in these, this task parallel library as well with the parallel extensions that allows us to work really effectively with different types of asynchronous and parallel approaches. Mm-hmm. It's also something that's continuing to be evolved throughout the language. So we, recently we've had this async and await keywords being introduced in the language mm-hmm. that evolves the, the way that you work with the tasks even more. So it allows you to take this pretty difficult topic and when they introduce a task, they make it a little bit easier and then use async and await. And it becomes so easy that it's easier for you to make mistakes in your applications, if that makes sense. It's a little too easy. It's a little too easy. (laughs) The API is so good that it's really hard to understand exactly the way that it works. So one of the things that I've run into, and uh, Sean may be able to relate to this, is right, with async and await, you're no longer managing the task yourself. I mean, it's still a task of uh, I action result or whatever, right? And so you you don't necessarily need to know the uh, the inner workings or how it's working in the background, right? And I've seen this a lot where you'll have an async task, but no await. And it, it'll run and it'll do its thing because it's not absolutely required, but that's not actually asynchronous, right? Correct, right. So just applying the async keyword to a method doesn't magically make the method asynchronous. So I tend to use that as an example when I, I show off how async and await works. You simply take an application that's running something that takes a long time and might be blocking up your UI. You apply the async keyword and it just still behaves the same way. When you apply the async keyword, what it's really doing is that it's taking your entire method and moving that into another method, so to speak, or some classes that's being generated as well. That's a way to oversimplify it, right? But it's still running synchronously. It's still, it's still just running on the same thread that it did earlier. Now, where the magic happens is when you couple this together with the await keyword. So when you have the task, the async keyword, and the await keyword in the same method, that's where the magic happens. So I want to step back a little bit and really, when should a developer look at using async await? And when are they just okay to, to, to not use that? You know, what circumstances would they want to make that switch over? You know, I've been right. using so, it for yep. a while with, with database calls and APIs and things like that. But, you know, f- to be honest, I may or may not be getting a benefit out of it. Sure. So it's interesting because there's, there's been this drive over the years to async everything, which means that every API that's available in every NuGet package that you find, they want to have an async API to allow you to work with all the methods asynchronously. But in some cases, it doesn't make any sense. And in some applications, like a console application or a Windows service, you might not really benefit that much from using the asynchronous approaches. So where you see the most benefit of using async and await and the task parallel library is, I would say, in applications that have a UI. So if you're building WPF applications or if you're working in Xamarin, you're really going to benefit from, from these APIs. And then, of course, as well, if you're working in ASP.NET, it's a little bit different because you don't have the UI at the server side, right? So one of the right. misconceptions with async in ASP.NET is that when you mark your method as async, the client side will be async. But that's, in, in fact, not what's going to happen. What's happening is that you relieve the server of some work to allow it to take other requests 
as it's waiting for whatever asynchronous operation it's waiting for. Yeah, it doesn't do uh, AJAX for the front right. end from the back yeah. end, which, which makes sense, right? Applications yeah. that I'm developing lately are Angular front end and C-sharp, you know, middleware back end. And, you know, they're segmented right, you know, right down the middle, right? One's our web yeah. app and one's our API. And, and while they talk to each other and they're dependent, you know, it's, you, you're not necessarily going to get the benefits of one and the other. I mean, they can, right. make, they can make each other faster, but, but it, it doesn't carry over. Yeah. So what's really interesting with this is if you're a full-stack developer, which I think most people strive to be full-stack developers, and that's one of the, the coolest titles you can have right now, and it's something that everyone's looking for. Right. That means that you need to understand async and await in JavaScript on the client side if you're working in Angular or whatever framework you work in. Right. And you need to understand the state machine and how everything works on the client side, as well as then understanding how async and await, async and await works on the server side. It's interesting, and I don't want to get too far on a tangent, but one of my coworkers at Angular, there's multiple ways of handling service calls and managing things. And he, I lean more towards RxJS and observables, and he actually uses the async and await. It's not promises, but it's different way of doing the observables. I believe, mm-hmm. and and he uses that because right that makes more sense to him, and it and it's more I guess more consistent with how .NET does it. So it's interesting to see the the uh, different approaches, you know, even from a TypeScript versus C sharp, you know, uh, patterns. So well, and it's, sure, yeah, mention that too because uh, in C sharp the async and await stuff, you know, like we're talking about is built in. And if you're talking about Angular in particular, the RxJS stuff is what's built in and kind of first class. So right. I think there are trade-offs depending on which environment you're in as well, which you want to use. But if you're super familiar with async and await, I don't see that there's necessarily a downside beyond the fact that the one is, I guess, more fully integrated in certain circumstances than the other. Yep. So on the server side, there's, there is some overhead with async await. So... Are there times where you would just want to just go with a straight synchronous call to something or process instead of going async? You don't want to spawn off a lot of threads solving a problem on the server side for one request, right? So if you're trying to solve something using, for instance, parallel extensions together with the, the task parallel library, you want to make sure that you're not throttling your server by just spawning off this farm of threads that solves one little thing for one user, so you have to make sure that you, you kind of use the correct tools for the job for that particular user. And in some cases, it would be better to just do that synchronously if it's a, it's a large chunk of work and just one thread being locked instead of locking every available thread on your, your system. What are some of the most common mistakes you see uh, people doing with async and await in C Sharp? Uh, that would for sure be, be deadlocking applications by using the uh, inappropriate methods like dot result or, or dot wait on your tasks. It's okay to use the result property on your task as long as you've properly awaited the task before. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to, to forget to await the task and then you run into a deadlock or your application becomes synchronous or it, it blocks the application rather. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the, the probably most common problems. And as well as marking your methods as async and not using the the await keyword of the task inside the method itself. That's probably the two things that I see a lot. Gotcha. Now, in ASP.NET, you have to be async all the way up the chain, right? All the way up the stack in your calls. So, like, IPAN has some difficulties with, like, 
my ASP.WebForms applications where yep. some of those methods, you know, at the very top, how do I get that to be as async without using the res- dot result or any like that stuff inside the methods? Well, if the top level method cannot be asynchronous, there's a way around that you can cheat the, uh, the state machine to not run into a deadlock. You can wrap it in a new task, which means the, de- the state machine will run somewhere else. But most of the time, the idea of, of running async all the way down boils down to how ASP.NET worked previously. So maybe without involving ASP.NET Core too much, where everything's changed, you should still try to do async all the way to make sure that you don't deadlock or that your, your, everything flows through the application. But if you can't do that, it should be okay to wrap it in a task and call dot result to uh, force out a, uh, a result, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Without going into too much details on how it works internally. So question here, and, and this goes along with the, the async all the way down, right? You've got five methods and they're all async. If you put an await inside each one of those, is that actually going to have performance implication versus doing the await once? Uh, yeah, so... Well, it's not only the await keyword, but as soon as you introduce the async keyword, there's going to be changes to your method. So if you use the async and await keyword on all of your methods, it's going to create something called a state machine for each of those methods. That means that it needs to keep track of everything that's happening inside your method. So if the last thing or the only thing that you're doing in your method is doing await your task, Mm -hmm. you can just as well return the task and remove the await and the async keyword. You're just relieve that work to whoever's calling the method instead. Because they have to await it as well, right? So you might as well just let them do it. So if you don't need the result in your method, there's no reason for you to use the await keyword. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think I've probably been making that mistake, doing async await all the way down my chain. Yeah, sometimes it's just easier to try and return it. And then if you need the result, you just add the async and the await keyword later on. Mm-hmm. And the contract for that method is still going to be intact, right? Because it's still going to return a task off the same thing. Gotcha. So you mentioned state machine. Yep. Is that something that's been around since uh, the task parallel program? Or is that, that a, a fairly newer feature with async await? Or is that just another way where they're abstracting away the complexity? So the state machine was introduced with the async and await keyword. And it's okay. the way that they kind of implement the the feature in the language. Gotcha. So it's using, internally, it's using the, uh, the task parallel library and task and all of that mm-hmm. to achieve this uh, really nice pattern that you can use in your applications with the async and await keywords. So all but that it's the, doing really is it's keeping track of where if, if your operation that you're awaiting is finished and it's keeping track of if there's an exception, it, it knows where to set that exception and how to handle that properly, as well as how to give you a result back and run your continuation. But it's doing a lot of magic that you don't have to do anymore. But the idea is you don't want to have numerous state machines running at the same time, especially if, if they're all trying to achieve the same purpose. Yeah, sure. You don't want to overuse the async and await keyword, but I will also say that you shouldn't be afraid of using it because it introduces a state machine. Okay. Does that make sense? So it's, it's yeah, the right yeah. amount. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I, I guess that would um, that would differ based on what you're developing for, whether it's desktop or mobile or web. Um, yeah. Okay. The, yeah, I've the, got an interesting uh, thing happened to yeah. me a few years ago now, and I did Xamarin development, and 
I used async in a way because everything's in .NET, right? Everything's in C Sharp. I felt familiar with using the APIs that you do in any other type of app. Mm-hmm. So I applied the async keyword at the wrong place in the Android application, and everything just broke, and I had no idea why. It turned out that it had to return some spe- specific value that it wouldn't do unless my async operation would complete first. But it took a little uh-huh. while, so it didn't return the value back to the OS, so the OS thought that the application crashed. So in some situations, <laughs> it could be, you, know, you need to be cautious about where you add these things, right? Even if it's so easy to add in your apps, like, right. you need to try to add a little bit. Yeah, I guess that goes, that falls along with what you said about weight and result is one's waiting on the other and the other is waiting on the one that's waiting on it and you just get stuck. Yeah, you get a deadlock. Yeah, there's, there's no way out. Got you. But what's interesting with that as well is that you could write a test and the way that your asynchronous operations executing that particular context might not deadlock. But then when you run this in your WPF application, it might deadlock. <laughs> so even if it doesn't deadlock in one type of app, it could do in another. Gotcha. It's a really okay. complex topic. <laughs> so in desktop applications and mobile applications, would async await be kind of the preferred way to keep the GUI free and, and keep it updating? You know, a long time ago, we, you'd always do do events and things like that to keep the GUI fresh and, and keep going. Is the, the right way to do it now with the async await? Yeah, I would say so. So if you apply the the normal patterns, you use MVVM in your WPF applications, and then inside your view models, everything is asynchronous. I would say that that's the way to do it. Well, it's my preferred way to do it. There are other ways to uh, to achieve the same thing. It's kind of the flavor that you like, but it's a, it's a very common approach across different types of applications. So if you use asynchronous await inside your WPF applications, an ASP.NET person might understand your app as well. And that's... Uh, a benefit of that as well. One of the things that, that's got me hung up previously is, right, the requirement for async await, but then feeling that I have to attach that await to some kind of uh, logic or call to the database or something, right? And if I don't necessarily have that, right, where do I put the await? But it doesn't have to be on a, a call to the database or a call to service or a call to another method, Correct. That's correct. Yeah. So you can spawn off a task by calling, for instance, task.run. Mm-hmm. And that'll start off a new thread. It'll run your work that you want on that particular thread. You pass a delegate to it or an action. It runs that action somewhere else. And then when this is done, you can get a notification with the state machine and all of that. It tells mm-hmm. you that there's a result available or this method executed properly or there was an exception and you can handle that properly. So normally, if you have something that's a little bit slow and you want to shoot that off somewhere else and you want to use the async and await principles in your applications, you just use task that run and you, you wrap your heavy machinery in there. Okay. Do you know if there are any significant changes in async await between .NET Framework and .NET Core? I wouldn't say significant, but there's yeah. been some changes in how it works in ASP.NET Core. Okay. In particular, how the... Um, Previously, for everything inside ASP.NET, you had to do configure await false to make sure that it didn't grab your entire synchronization context and, and pass that down. Okay. In ASP.NET Core, that's a little bit different. I don't want to go into the details because that's very, uh, very much a implementation detail, but it's gotcha. a little bit different. It's a little bit better and works a little bit more like you would expect. That makes sense. Good. I've seen a number of things like that, right? a number of incremental changes that they realized were issues in .NET Framework that they integrated into Core. 
And uh, those those little bits and pieces add up, right? Yeah. Okay. But most uh, of the things are are working in a similar manner as it did earlier. Yeah. But if we look at C sharp eight and and forward, they're introducing things like asynchronous streams, which okay. is a way of working with streams of data. So think of grabbing, um, for instance, each line in a text file, and mm-hmm. you want to process each line as you get that from your disk. Now, normally reading from the disk is pretty fast, but you want to process that. And instead of having to do that in a nasty way, like you can probably think of ways that you can build this. Yeah. Instead of coming up with some weird way, you can simply apply the await keyword in before the for each loop where you load each line from disk. So it'll just, there's a little bit more to it, but let's say that you have await for each line in your file and you can process each line as you get that. That's a stream of data coming from your disk. That's a really nice API, and it's an interesting addition to the language. Okay. You mentioned C-sharp 8, and I, I actually wanted to dig into that some. But one thing I want to um, bring up about async await before I forget is debugging in async await. How do you handle that, right? Because, um, and I'm sure other people have, have run into this, uh, uh, Sean as well, right? When you go to debug like an API, that's async await, yeah. You know, I've I've got my breakpoints, and my the same breakpoint might be hit three times. You know, and, mm-hmm. it, and it may bounce back and forth between methods. How do you handle that, or do you just you just kind of ignore it and and get to where you need to be to get the data you get need? Well, so I think we uh, end up having the same problem because I, I end up having the same issues, right? So yeah. it's really hard to debug asynchronous code because it's right. it's a complex topic and it's it's complex how it works and how it's implemented. But there are some help in Visual Studio, and they're introducing more and more help in, for instance, Visual Studio 2019 has a lot more help. It shows the stack a little bit different when you look at, or yeah, the call stack. You can see that a little bit different when you debug the application. They've done done improvements over the years, but so I guess the the answer is upgrade Visual Studio and you'll (laughs) get a little bit more help, but there's no silver bullet. Right, right. Okay, so uh, is there anything that we didn't ask a question about async await that you think would be beneficial for our listeners to know about? I think we covered everything from the misconceptions of how async and await works to debugging to how the state machine internally works and how it works in different types of applications. I think that kind of covers all the the bases that most developers would want to, to listen to. Okay. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. In a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. 
And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So what about um, C-sharp 8 is uh, really kind of fascinating and cool that uh, people that haven't you know, switched over and tried to use that yet, what's coming down the pipe there? Right. So there's um, three features in C-sharp 8 that are really interesting. And it's language features that they probably wanted to introduce for a long time, but couldn't since they had an older compiler. And now Roslyn's been around for a few years. That's the, uh, the, dot, the new .NET compiler platform. Codename was Roslyn. So now they're introducing changes to how tuples works, pattern matching, as well as the null reference types. So those are three of the major features they're adding, and we can go through um, go through them if you want to, and we can talk a little bit more in detail about how they're changing the language. I think that would be great. I've used um, tuples, tuples, uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have actually used those in certain circumstances. Yep. And I've had coworkers look at it and like, what is this? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, I right. need, you know, three different results from this call, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily want one object. Here's a way to do it. And I think yep. I've actually seen how the latest version of the identity example in .NET Core MVC has, is using a, a, a tuple, right? Yep. So, yeah, can you explain that? To our listeners, I think it's a really cool function that they that they've, like you said, has made a first class member of C sharp. Right. So, so I just want to emphasize yeah. tuples or tuples. Yeah. I can blame that right. I'm not native English, so <laughs> I can call it whatever I want. And you know, right. Yes, um, I'm a tuple. I'm a tuple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the tuples were introduced in C sharp. One of the C sharp seven versions. There was mm-hmm. a few points. I can remember which one. What they allow you to do is represent a type without creating the type. So you can say that I have this thing, which is not an anonymous type. It's not a particular class, but it's a container of multiple values. So you can say I have this thing that contains an integer, a string, and whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And you have this construct of how you um, express that in your language. right? So now we can return something that is not a real type that we've declared in the language. It's not an anonymous type, so we don't have those, any of those uh, negative impacts. But we have this tuple thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a container of multiple values. And where it becomes really interesting is when we combine that with pattern matching. And I think that's okay. what we see in, for instance, ASP.NET Core that you mentioned. Some of those things allow you to more easily use pattern matching. And pattern matching is a way for us to look at a given type and figure out what we want to do with it or find out its particular traits. So we could construct a tuple to say, I want to look at a type that has an integer, a string, and a double. And it'll allow us to match on that particular thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense to me. How would you compare them to dynamics? So people who are, right, it's not an anonymous type, but it's also not, it's not a, a type that's determined at runtime, right? Like a dynamic would be. Yep. Um, so it is actually types built into C-sharp or objects that you've created, right? Classes mm-hmm. that you've created that you can, you can stack together. So that's a very good question. Dynamics is something totally different. It okay. evaluates your expression in runtime and it has a kind of a huge performance impact depending on the system okay. you run it on. Tuples okay. is, is just a way for you to construct a, a type or say that 
A good example is a method that returns two things. Let's say that you return the age and the name of a person. Instead okay. of creating this struct or a class that represents those two, those two values, you can now say that my method returns an int and a string. I can give that int and a string a name, or mm -hmm. I can deconstruct that into a local variable when I call the method, right? So this tuple thing, it's, it's not dynamics. It's, it's mm -hmm. not an anonymous type. It's not a new class. It's not a new struct. It's just a, a prettier way of us to create tuples in C Sharp because we've been able to use the tuple class previously, but now we have a first first class citizen in the language to do that. In the, I'll add links to your NDC talks because I think you go into some good detail and you actually show some examples so yeah. people can see what they look like. Yeah, it's easier okay. when you look at code as well. <laughs> right. right. So tuple, tuples used to be positional based, if I'm not wrong there. And I think I avoided them because of that kind of a mm -hmm. limitation, yeah. but that's no longer the case, right? They are still position-based. So that's one of the demos that I show in my NDC talk, that if you call a method, you can still deconstruct that into something that, that doesn't make any sense. So if you're returning an integer called x and an inter, integer called y, you can call that tuple tuple.x and tuple.y, but when you deconstruct that into your, into your local variable where you're calling the method, you can deconstruct that into a new tuple, and when you do so, it's going to take the first value of what's returned from the tuple and match that into the first one in your new tuple. So it is position-based as well as allowing you to have names of your fields on your tuples. Right. So you got the names, benefits, it, so you're not forced to do positional-based references yeah. like you used to be. Yeah. But it's good to know that if you deconstruct it into a new tuple, which is really simple when you uh, use the built-in language features, mm -hmm. it could end up not being what you think it is. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. So I'm really excited about um, the, the null reference types coming. Yep. You want to talk about that? Sure. So <laughs> what's funny with nulls in, in C Sharp and .NET in general is that I think that the developer who decided to add that to the language has probably have regretted that since the start. It's one of those things. I, I heard someone calculating on how many millions of dollars the null, null reference exceptions have cost over the years. And it's just a tremendous amount of money, right? So they want to find ways for developers to find null references before it goes into production. Yeah, I think it also cost me my hair. So yeah, that's yeah. a good thing there. <laughs> <laughs> it's costing people jobs and hairs. And you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting language feature to have, right? And now that we get the null reference types, which is a way for us to declare that we no longer want nulls in our context. So what you can do is that you can say, Inside my entire solution, inside my project, inside this class, inside this method, you can be very granular about how you want to treat nulls in your application. You can mm -hmm. say that I don't want nulls anywhere, or I want nulls in this particular place. And what you say is that everything is now looked at as non-nullable, or it's looked at, looked at as nullable. So you can say that, for instance, all the strings which are normally nullable are no longer allowed to be null. And what happens when you compile your application is that you're going to get a warning to tell you that, hey, you should probably fix this because you might have a potential null reference problem. Gotcha. Now, in this upcoming version, they're going to treat that as warnings, I believe. It's the, the final thing. But you can, of course, turn on warnings as errors, and that's going to break the build if you have potential null reference, null reference problems. So the last thing that I read about C Sharp 8 was that and null reference types weren't going to be on by default. You would have to turn it on. 
Yeah, um, that's correct. So it's still, okay. a, I believe, a preview feature. So you okay. have to turn that on. Or actually, it's a, it's a feature coming in Visual Studio 2019, and you have to opt in in, in your project. That's correct. Got gotcha. you. Okay. So this isn't something you would suggest someone use on an existing project or something that's been around for years. Yeah, right. So putting the null reference types in existing projects would be a very interesting experiment because mm-hmm. you would definitely find places where nulls or nulls could end up being null reference exceptions. Gotcha. Now, going, going ahead and fixing all of those problems is probably not the best approach, you know, because right, right. it might not be a real problem. But I know, um, I think John Skeet wrote a blog post on how he turned it on for Nota Time, which is his open source project. He right. found heaps of interesting things on how it could potentially, you know, crash and turn into null reference exceptions. And if, so and it's if a good he's way. got those in his code, everyone yeah. has them in their code. <laughs> No, so I could I could see you like turning it on and then seeing what the list looks like and maybe you know scan through it, but find some of the really bad ones and then turn it back off. Yeah, yeah, you probably want to do that, or because you know if you. So I've been building a lot of different projects over the years, and and I normally tend to ignore the warnings, and I think a lot of developers do, right? Right. Yeah, you probably want to turn it on, try it out, and and then fix the bigger ones, and then turn it on. Um, sometime in the future again and try, try it a little bit on up and see what works for you. Do you think this is will change how developers use GSAR? I mean, I know it, right? Oh, it's going to take a while for people to start developing projects that can really make use of it. But do you see yeah. this becoming the standard in the next few years that, that people are using this feature? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, so on the, I've been doing Kotlin for, for work for okay. one a little bit over a year now, and everything's non-nullable by default, so you have to be very explicit about when you want something to be null, and you need to handle okay. that properly, otherwise the compiler is going to slap you on the fingers. Yeah. And I think that most languages will turn into that. It'll allow you to use nulls over wherever you want, but mm-hmm. you need to be very explicit about if it's null or not null. Gotcha. Right? Gotcha. I, I think that it would have been tough for the compiler team to just say or to say that Let's just look at everything as non-nullable, and we're going to just give people errors everywhere. Oh yeah, now that one. Then work. you wouldn't have any developers left, right? <laughs> right. That would have been terrible. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned um, pattern matching and how yeah. tuples can take advantage of the new pattern matching in C sharp eight. Yep. You're not talking like regex patterns. You're talking something else, right? Yeah. Right. So. When we look at an object, we can, we can now introduce something called a deconstructor or deconstruct. Okay. What this method will do, it'll take your type and deconstruct it into something else, which is a tuple. So okay. it'll take your type and, and you imagine that it, it, it's a person, right? You have a name and you have an, an age. Mm-hmm. Then it would deconstruct your person type into an integer as well as a name. Does okay. that make sense? So in that sense, the pattern is built in. It's not even something you have to tell it to do. It's just automatically part of the, the tuple. No, so, so that, that's part of the type. So on the person type, you introduce uh-huh. a method called deconstruct, which okay. returns a tuple, or it sets, uh, it's capable of setting a few values, which you then deconstruct into a tuple. It's hard to explain okay. without looking at code. But basically gotcha. what you want to do is that you take your person type and mm-hmm. you deconstruct that into a tuple okay. that contains an integer 
and a string which represents your age and your name, right? Okay, okay. So, so gotcha. then the way that we construct or the way that we use that together with pattern matching is mm-hmm. that imagine that we look through a list of persons or a list of people. Okay. Now you want to introduce or find people where they have a given name or where they don't have a name specified at all. You want to select out the people without a name. You can uh, use okay. pattern matching to look at a given type and find that particular thing. So instead of doing like an I enumerable or iterating over a collection to find specific no, values. You still need the, uh, the I enumerable to look over the entire collection. Okay. But when you match on that particular person, mm-hmm. you, know, you can have a subclass of person, for instance, that would be a teacher, it could be a mechanic or whatever you want, right? So you can okay. say, find me a mechanic that mm-hmm. has a name specified. Okay. So you can use a switch expression to gotcha. look through your particular types and match that against certain constructs of that particular class. Okay. And there's and you mentioned switch expression. There's a new switch inside of C sharp eight that's yeah, it's uh simplified. It works pretty much like the old switch. It's just simplified. It looks more like other programming languages. Okay. So yeah, okay. it's uh it's much more like uh, they want to introduce less code. And they want to do expressions everywhere, pretty much. And um, it's just a lot nicer. Gotcha. We can include some links to... Uh, I have an MSD, an article on, on pattern matching and how to do that in a really nice way in your application. So we can include that as well in the, in the links. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So what are some of the different patterns then? We mentioned the tuple pattern. Right. That'll allow you to say that given this particular type, let's say that we have the person, it could be subclassed into different types of people. Mm-hmm. And you can say that I want the, a particular mechanic with a given mm-hmm. age or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you can have a positional pattern. And you can have a positional pattern to say that I want the, the first value of the tuple to have some particular value. You could look at properties, which is a property pattern. So you can mm-hmm. do a whole lot of interesting things, right? So you, so you can use pattern matching to not only look at the, uh, the particular type, but you can also look at the traits of that particular type. And then inside the... Uh, Inside, let's say that you have your, your switch and then you say, for the case of it being a person or for the case of it being a mechanic, I want to okay. use this mechanic inside this context. And you don't have to cast that to, to the particular type yourself. Ah, okay. Okay. So some of these C-sharp 8 features are going to be core only. And some are core only, are core and full framework. Do you know where, where that separation is? So I believe that some of the features that you won't be seeing in full framework is uh, the asynchronous streams will most likely not show up. Right. Whatever record types show up in, in, dot, in .NET or C Sharp, it's not going to be full framework. And the default interface methods, they won't, they won't be in, in full framework either. Got you. But I'm not uh, sure about the other ones. It could be that some of them are available in full framework. Got you. I'm actually seeing something here that it says uh, async streams, indexers, ranges, all rely on framework types that are part of .NET standard, .NET, not necessarily uh, framework or core. So that maybe that's the differentiator. Okay. Yeah. What's the thing in C Sharp or .NET that, that you're getting the most bang for your buck or finding most useful currently? Are you using C Sharp 8 in preview? So I'm using C Sharp 8 only for, for smaller hobby things. And I'm doing a little bit of .NET Core APIs as well on the, on the side, but since C Sharp 8 has, hasn't been officially released yet, yeah. it's, it's hard to get that approved across the, yeah. uh, the board of all the other developers right. and architects. Right. 
and all that. But some of the things that I would like to introduce is, of course, the uh, the null reference types. I think gotcha. that's going to be an interesting thing to to add to to the uh, projects that we have. I see the more and more developers moving across over to .NET Core. We've had heaps of of .NET older ASP.NET APIs, and we were migrating over to .NET Core. And I think that's it's going to open the door to just jump on .NET .NET Core 3.0 and then or 3.1 and then introduce C Sharp 8 as well. We're all going to be, uh, you know, uh, benefiting from the switch expressions and maybe not the default interface methods. If you've seen my talk, you, you probably know that I'm not really fond of that feature, but yeah. it's an interesting feature to add to the language. Yeah, I've been lucky to actually have been working with .NET Core since it uh, went release candidate. So I'm looking forward to more developers moving onto core and having access to to the benefits that that .NET Core and .NET Standard provide. Yeah, I jumped on the um, on ASP.NET Core even before they called it Core. I think it was MVC six or whatever they called the uh, the testing version. And uh, I tried to jump on early, and and I got some um, some projects to to jump on the preview of that because I thought this is going to be the way forward. And yeah. then with each release, it just got harder and harder to right. to uh, to keep upgrading to the new features and you know it's uh, right. but now i think it's going to settle so yeah as, as people get onto .NET core 2.0 and, and then onwards it's going to be easier to to migrate to new versions as well this is a bit of a tangent uh, and after this we can get to picks but uh we were actually talking with uh mads christensen about this right the early versions of .NET core and enx mm. instead of .NET command and how all the config stuff ended up in JSON, and then it went back yeah. to being a mix. There were a lot of bumps uh, along the road, so to speak, but I, I really like where it's ended up. So. Yeah, and I think what's interesting with that is that they've been very transparent with all the work that they've done. And yeah. of course, people are going to hate them for moving in one direction and then moving over to another one because people, people are used to Microsoft always releasing things when it's done. So in the early days of ASP.NET Core and, and .NET Core, People probably thought that this isn't going to change much and then jumped on the ship early. Mm -hmm. But then it started changing and we see this kind of trend in Microsoft where they try to do more things in the open, get the uh, feedback from the uh, users early so they can change according to what people want. And I think that's better than just waiting two or three years before releasing a new version. Agreed. About 10 months before we started Ruby Rogues, which is the oldest podcast on devchat.tv, I went freelance. And one of the things that I figured out pretty fast is that I had no idea what I was doing. And I made a bunch of mistakes, but I also made a bunch of friends who were doing freelance. And we got together and we started a podcast called The Freelancer Show. And The Freelancer Show has been running about as long as JavaScript Jabber. But we talked every week about all of the things that we were learning and doing in freelancing and giving people advice on how to get their business started so that they could go out and be independent if that's what they wanted. Nowadays, I'm not on the show anymore, but we have terrific people like Ruben Lerner and Eric Dietrich that come on every week and talk to you about how they run their businesses and give other perspectives on things that you can do. So whether it's how to find clients or whether it's how to step in and start doing training or other programs or how to run a business, they have a ton of experience and they talk about all kinds of things that are going to help you pull things together and be successful as a freelancer. So whether you're thinking about moonlighting and trying it out or whether you're going whole hog and putting your job, you should definitely check out The Freelancer Show and you can find that at freelancershow.com. So, Philip, at the end of each show, we like to, uh, you know, tell our listeners about something that we're interested in lately. Could be a movie, could be a book, could be food, 
anything technology related, anything like that. So if you can try to think of something, I'll have uh, Caleb start with his pick this week. Yeah. Go ahead. So my pick actually uh, kind of uh, goes off of uh, some of uh, the discussion we had last week, Chuck, about Nintendo Switch is, uh, right, they've come out with a new version of the Switch, not the Switch Lite, but the Switch that has better, better battery life and has the Tegra X1 built in and GameStop is um, doing a a deal right now where you can bring in your existing Switch and trade it in for a $225 credit towards a brand new one. And so that's something that I'm looking at doing because it goes from two to four and a half hours of playtime to like five to nine. And you get a new Switch out of it for 75 bucks. So anyone who likes the Switch and plays a lot on the go, it, I think that's it's well worth it. Cool. Chuck, do you have a pick? I'm just going to pick a couple of episodes we did lately. So Ruby Rogues, we talked uh, to Adam Cuppy, and we talked a lot about building proficiency and good habits and things like that, which was really, really great. And then on Tuesday, I talked to Douglas Crockford, who's pretty well known in the JavaScript community. He wrote uh, JavaScript Good Parts and a few other books. And anyway, really, really enjoyed that. So I'm going to pick that as well. And then finally, I've been playing a game on my phone lately just off and on when I'm kind of stuck somewhere and have a minute. And it's uh, the Dr. Mario world that's on the iPhone. And that's been a lot of fun too. So pick those. Okay. My pick this week is kind of on topic with what we kind of talked about today, you know, with debugging, especially with async and await. And it's a, a Visual Studio plugin called Ozcode. I don't know if anybody that's here that's uh, used it before, but it's, they call themselves a magical debugger. So it really enhances that debugging capability that you get within Visual Studio and allows you to uh, kind of filter things that you're looking at in your washed windows, much more advanced debugging tools for Visual Studio. So if you want that kind of ability, check out Ozcode. I have to take a look. All right. Philip, did you think of something? Yeah. So my pick is they just announced that the Final Fantasy VIII remaster it's going to be released next week, and right. it's going to be released with a Switch. So if you trade in your Switch and get a new one, you're probably going to have battery life enough to finish the game in a, in a few days. Nice. So I'm really excited about that, as well as the, uh, the Final Fantasy VII remake that they've been releasing demos off and showing off content. As you can probably say, that I'm a, I'm a big Final Fantasy gamer, so I love that they're invested in the, uh, the game as well. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time playing that. Yeah, I have versions of Final Fantasy across more platforms than I care to admit, including my phone. <laughs> yep, I can relate to that. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Philip, for being with us today. If uh, some of our listeners want to reach out to you, how could they do that? They can ping me on Twitter. I'm at F. Ekberg on Twitter, or they can head over to my blog, philipekberg.se. Or just shoot me an email. I'm, I'm happily answering questions about C Sharp or programming or stuff in life in general. And so thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I also understand you have a book, C Sharp Smorgasbord. That That's correct. Yeah, I do. And it's, uh, it's now freely available on its website. You can find that through my Twitter or, or through cool. my blog as well. It's got okay. a few years on, on its back, but it covers yeah. things like asynchronous programming and and. A lot of things that haven't changed over the years, so you can still pick that up and, and read through the book and, and find some good content. I'm biased, though. So you have to ask someone else, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
One last thing I also like to uh, let our listeners know about is if they want to reach out and discuss with other listeners of any of the uh, devchat.tv podcasts or any with any of the hosts of the podcasts, go to devchat.tv and look at the top. You'll find option for chat. Click on that. It'll take you a Discord group for all the different podcasts that are available on devchat.tv. Thanks again, everybody, for being here today. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.